Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. We have the privilege today to hear a lecture by Dr. Eugene Peterson. That's a name that will be known to many of you. He is the person who translated the very famous translation of the Bible called The Message. Eugene Peterson is the James M. Houston Professor of Spiritual Theology at Regent College. And this particular lecture was actually given at Regent some years ago, where Dr. Peterson had been teaching for a number of years at that point. By background, uh, he's an Old Testament scholar. He refers in this lecture to his study of Ugaritic and Aramaic. Uh, but he also is a, a pastor. He served as a Presbyterian pastor in uh, Maryland, a Christ Our King Presbyterian Church in Bel Air, Maryland, for a number of years before going to Regent. Uh, he's a great thinker, but also a very deeply pastoral theologian. And this particular lecture is on Jesus the Way. He takes as his text, John fourteen six, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And he zeroes in on the first of those three words, I am the way. In fact, he has a book called The Jesus Way, as well as a number of many, many other books, all very good, very helpful. We use them as textbooks in some of our courses here at Beeson Divinity School. Let's listen to this great teacher of God's Word, this wonderful pastoral theologian, Bible translator, Dr. Eugene Peterson, as he speaks on Jesus, the way. Oh, Sven, thank you. I'm, I wish I'd have written that. <laughs> <laughs> it's good to be with you, uh, although I don't know most of you, but um, you look good. <laughs> look like a real region community. Even the faculty's changed. You've gotten older. You, I think you're shrinking and it's just, it's not quite the same as when I left. Um, a heart and a mind for God in word and worship. My topic, what I would call what I have to say about this, is doing the right thing in the wrong way. My text is um, John 14, verse 6, when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And I want to focus on that first part, the way. We can't know or do or teach or live the truth if we don't do it in the way. Jesus was the truth, but he's also the way. We can't separate what Jesus said and was from the way he did it the way he said it. There are a lot of ways we can become heretics. And we have creeds to keep us on track. But there are a lot more ways in which we can do the truth in the wrong way. And we don't have any creeds to keep us sharp. We have a community, mostly we have Jesus, and we have the Spirit, and we have a great tradition to work with. I've come to think since I left here, as I've been observing what's going on in the world, in the church, that we might be in a crisis of unprecedented proportions having to do with the way the ways and means of doing the gospel. In the United States Senate, they have a committee called the Ways and Means Committee. I have no idea what they do, but I think we ought to make a huge committee and put all of you on it 
in the church, the Ways and Means Committee. So we start paying attention to the way we talk, the way we act, so that it's consistent with the way Jesus did it. I've acquired a friend since I left here. He's not a close friend. He's an acquaintance. I've worked with him a little bit. His name is Albert Borgman. He's the head of the philosophy department at the University of Montana. I think he might be one of the most significant voices for the church to listen to in these days. He's made it his, he's a devout Christian and a serious philosopher, and he's taken it as his mission, his focus, and what he's doing is examining the technology of our time to try to discern how we can keep it useful and not destructive. We are in a time, technology isn't new, but something's happened in the last, oh, 30 years even. It has just exploded. Every time there's an advance in technology, Borgman says, and he is, his writings are just are so perceptive, uh, elegant. Every time there's an advance in technology, there's a decrease in relationship. Technology is a way to get something done fast, faster, efficiently, without bothering with people. And so every time we have more advance in technology, we have less relationship. Is that the way we want to live, Borkman says? Do we want to become machines or have our lives controlled by machines and technique and technology? And so he examines what we're doing so that we can make decisions about how we operate without losing what it means to be a human being. Now, if there's anything that is fundamental and basic to the Christian church, it's relationship. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, a relationship. This emphatically personal God that we're with, who brings us into the relationship, loves us, cares for us, saves us. So I'm on a campaign to de-technologize the gospel. I don't mean get rid of technology. I've got something here that helps me a great deal. Um, I mean that it does not depersonalize, that we have ways to examine, to discern, to pray, so that it doesn't uh, depersonalize the gospel. I got an early start in doing the right thing in the wrong way. I was six years old, and I went to school, and after about five or six days in school, Cecil Zachary discovered me. Cecil Zachary was a bully. He lived down the street from me, uh, but I didn't know him. Um, but he, bullies have this sixth sense on finding easy targets, and he found me, and he started taunting me. Um, I was um, I was a holy roller. We were Pentecostals. Uh, I was um, a Jesus freak. Uh, he just, you know, found out all kinds of ways to taunt me. Well, I'd grown up in this devout Christian home, and I was well-schooled in the ways of the gospel, which included um, love your enemies, uh, turn the other cheek, um, you're blessed when you're persecuted, uh, and so I just kind of took it. Um, then he started, he raised the ante, and he started poking me, punching me. And finally that accelerated into actual fist fights. He just beat me up every night after school. I tried to find alternate ways home, um, never it worked. And uh, so I'd come home and I'd tell my mother, uh, this wonderful Norwegian mother, uh, who uh, knew all about the gospel and God and uh, how to survive in the world. And she said, Eugene, just learn. I mean, this is the way it's going to be. Um, just pray for Cecil. So I mumbled prayers for Cecil. That went on till February. I know it was February because um, there was still snow on the ground. 
And, um, but it had been melting, and we had our coats off. We were coming home, and Cecil found me, and uh, there were seven or eight other kids. And uh, something snapped uh, when he started poking me, hitting me. And I grabbed him. And to my surprise and his, I was stronger than he was. <laughs> so I threw him to the ground, pinned his arms with my knees, and um, said, say, uncle. <laughs> he wouldn't say it. So I poked him, hit him. I mean, it wasn't a poke, it was a hit. And his nose just, oh, it was just beautiful. This blood came out. <laughs> on the snow, and uh, it was such a lovely thing. <laughs> and I said, say, uncle. He wouldn't say it. So I revved it up, and I hit him three or four times fast, and more, more blood came. And, um, and then I said, say, I believe in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. <laughs> And he said it. <laughs> he was my first Christian convert. <laughs> the right thing in the wrong way. And I was on my way. I've been doing it a lot ever since. <laughs> getting a truth, getting a cause, um, getting an idea, and then from Jesus, and then forgetting about Jesus, and doing it my own way, or the culture's way, or what somebody else told me is the way. The way of Jesus is the way of the cross, the way of sacrifice, the way of love, the way of grace, and we don't do those things well. We need a lot of help, a lot of companionship, a lot of people helping us, teaching us, training us, disciplining us. Our parents do it for a few years. They try to socialize us into um, civilized behavior. And the church does the same thing, tries to theologize, or I don't know a good word for this, but get us living the Christian faith from the inside, not just knowing about it. So our hearts and our minds working out of this interior that uh, Bruce and Carol talked about last night, um, it's hard work. I just turned 70, right, a few months ago, and I, I'm 70 years old. I, I should have this. I should have it down by now, and I don't. So I need people like you, you need people like me to do this. Now I'm going to give you um, a scheme, a, a little, yeah, a scheme that's been very, very useful in the church for a long, long time. In fact, for at least 1,300 years, this was the primary way in which Christians were taught to read the Bible. It's kind of went, gone into disrepair or forgetfulness or put on the shelf, but uh, Regent College is a place that is um, where this is active again, and I just want to review it for you. It has to do primarily with reading scripture, but it applies to anything. Evangelism, uh, going on the hike with Lauren this afternoon, uh, cooking a meal, uh, missions. Um, it fits anything we're doing in the Christian faith. Uh, but I'm just going to deal with Scripture right now because Scripture is so central to everything we're doing. The fancy name for it is Lexio Divina, spiritual reading. And it's the way we read the Bible, or the way, the means that we use to read the Bible, the way we worship, the way we do everything. The first part is... Well, let me say first, you've got to have a sense of the nature, the unique nature of Scripture. This is a living word. 
This is something which has never been done before. Um, this is God revealing himself in language, which then is fulfilled and completed in the word, the Logos, Jesus, and given to us as words on paper. But not just words on paper. The spirit that inspired these words is the same spirit that interprets these words and brings them to life in us. This is God present with us in language, in presence. Um, one of your professors, or maybe ex-professor now, Gordon Feed, never tires. I mean, he's strenuous in saying, this is the way God is with us. This is God's empowering presence. When we're reading scripture, we enter a world, a huge, storied world, in which we're included, and we're accompanied by God's spirit. We are, God's spirit is in us to interpret these words. A long time ago, it was about 80 years ago, um, Karl Barth gave an address in a little tiny church in Switzerland, and which was put in a book, and um, it's a small paragraph in the book, actually, but it's, his title of his um, address was The Strange New World of the Bible. Something, that's close, that's not quite accurate. And he gives this illustration, which I'm now going to expand. Um, such a good image, and he didn't make as much out of it as he could have, so I'm helping him out. <laughs> Imagine a people like, well, this room. Take out the windows, no windows, no doors, just this room, and we all live here. And it's very comfortable. There's plenty of food, good circulation. Um, and um, this is the only world we know. And uh, one day, somebody cuts a hole in the wall and looks out, and he sees people out there who are doing funny things. They're walking around, and they're pointing up in the sky and looking and talking to each other, excited. And they, you know, what are those people doing? You know, you look up here, what do you see? You see some beams and wood and lights, and a basketball hoop. Um, so these kids did this, vandalizing. Uh, so one of them crawls out the hole and goes out in the street to find out what's going on. Well, there's a sky. There are clouds. There are geese flying. There are airplanes. And they're looking up and people are excited about the it's migration time and all these birds coming through and they go back inside and they tell the people there's a there's a world out there of sky of birds of clouds of sun and um but nobody's interested i mean they've got a very comfortable life here and they know what's going on it's present um so um once in a while somebody crawls out the window and never comes back but basically, everybody just stays there and um, continues their life. Bart said, you open the Bible and you crawl out that little hole and suddenly you find yourself in this world of God. The strange thing is, not many people want to do it. Why would they do that? I mean, it's scary out there. There are mosquitoes and terrorists, and we've got it all safe and controlled in here. We'll never understand the Bible, Bart said, if we don't realize the world of the Bible, this world of God, this world where there's so much invisibility, there's so much openness. Um, why live in this little cramped warehouse when you can live out there? But it's safe in here. We know where things are. We have all the answers in here. That's the first thing we have to, need, have to remember about Scripture is this world. It's, it's the world of God. It's the world where most of what goes on is invisible to us. We don't see it all. But the Bible keeps referring to that. The other thing about the Bible we have to know, we have to remember, is that it's a spirit text. 
the Spirit of God is in this text, and it's in writing first and speaking, and now as we're reading it. There's a troublesome word, or a word that becomes troublesome in our vocabularies, and that's the word power. Um, Luke is our, Luke and Paul together, but Luke with his gospel and the Acts, um, makes us attentive to the Spirit more than the, uh, more than the other gospel writers do, not exclusively, but it's just, he refers to more times. I think it's understandable because he's the only uh, non-eyewitness of the gospel writers. He's a Gentile. He um, got all his information secondhand from other witnesses. Um, and then he wrote the story of the first Christian community. He continues the Jesus story in the Jesus community. And when he gets to the Acts of the Apostles, writing about this Christian community, his references to the Holy Spirit just proliferate because this is Jesus now in the community. Jesus leaves them, but he doesn't leave them. He's there with them. The last few sentences of the um, Gospel of Luke, uh, Luke says um, that um, there's a wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes on them with power. Then, turn the page, or you got to get through John, uh, and then there they are, and waiting for the promise of the Holy Spirit. And power, the word power occurs at one place. Now, when I hear the word power, I think of horsepower. I, I think of a powerful horse, or a powerful car, or a powerful person knows how to get things done. There's muscle behind the word power. So it's understandable that we see that word power and we think, wow, this is, I can do anything now. Um, but I got curious about this the other day, so I was provoked by somebody. Um, this was a few months ago. And um, I thought, well, I, I just want to see how Paul, how Luke uses the word power. The first time is used in his gospel when Gabriel comes and says to Mary that the Holy Spirit is going to come upon her and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. The power of the Holy Spirit makes her pregnant. Now, if the word power is used in that context, it's unthinkable to most of us to think of anything forced or coerced. I mean, this is the most intimate act which a person can experience. And um, if there's a violation of the intimacy by force, we call it rape. Well, this certainly wasn't a rape. This was a conception. The next time the word power is used in Luke is in chapter 4. It's just, it's preceded by the temptations of Jesus, the devil tempting Jesus. The devil tempts him to um, turn stones into bread so everybody can be fed. He tempts him to be the ruler of the world and so everything can run right. And he tempts him to jump off the pinnacle of the temple. Uh, it's kind of an evangelism stunt. You know, you, you jump off and you're rescued at the last minute by the angels and you know, you've got, that's street evangelism at its best. And Jesus refuses each time. Now, why does he refuse? These are all aspects of power. And they're useful. Stones into bread, solve the hunger problem of the world, um, take over the rule of the world, all the, all the injustice is gone, everybody's going to be, get along with each other, and demonstrate the power of God in an unmistakable way um, right on the streets of Jerusalem. Well, I think the reason that that... Need, and, and Jesus could have done it. Remember that. He could have done it. Why didn't he do it? Because that would have been an exercise of power in an impersonal way. There was no relationship. 
None. A few sentences later, the word power comes up again. Jesus left the desert and he went to Galilee and he began to preach in the synagogues with power. Power. That's where the word is used now. Not doing spectacular things, although he did plenty of spectacular things, but always personally, always relationally. Power was never a forced thing. It always came out of relationships which were bathed in love, grace, salvation. Um, so, as we read the Bible, and using just reading the Bible as a as a place to out of which we can do a lot of other things, we have to remember that this world, we live in this world of the Bible, it's what Mark called the strange new world of the Bible, and it's a it's a world that where the spirit provides the energy, a power, but not power the way we ordinarily think of it. It's a power that gets things done, but always in a relational way, never in a forced, violent, destructive way. Okay, got that? I've got four words to give to you. They're all in Latin, but uh, that's just because we're an academic group. It just gives a little, you know, zest to it to make it Latin. Lexio, meditatio, oratio, contemplatio. Lexio, read. We read this text, and, and basically what is behind our traditions and trying to understand how to do this rightly, live this rightly, the way in which we do the gospel, the way in which we develop the truth. Um, we're paying attention. We've got a text, a text to live by, a text which reveals God to us, the ways of God to us. That God is, but the way God is. Pay attention. Read this. But, you know, you can read very different ways. I mean, when you get a personal letter, you read it one way. When you get some junk mail uh, in your mailbox, you read it quite a different way. Uh, reading scripture has to do with paying attention to the one who is speaking to us. This is a living word. You get good training. You will get good training here at Region on how to read. Exegesis is the, is the word for it. But it's a careful paying attention to what's there, not making things up, not pushing stuff of your own, not depersonalizing. This is God speaking to you. I have a wonderful story that I love to tell um, from Melville's novel, White Jacket. It's not his best novel. Um, I'm going to tell you the really good part of it so you don't have to read it yourself. Uh, it's a man-of-war ship. They're out for three years, and there's a physician on the ship called named Dr. Cuticle. <clears throat> Wonderful name, isn't it? And, you know, what's, what, what's more boring than being a surgeon for three years on a ship? I mean, what do you do? I mean, blisters is about all you get to take care of. And one day, one of the sailors gets sick, and Dr. Cuticle immediately diagnoses appendicitis. He's got to do surgery. He's excited. And he turns the mess room into a surgery and lays the guy out on the table and gets seven or eight of the sailors to be nurses to assist him, and he goes to work. And this is, this is a high point of his career. And, and these satyrs, they've never seen the inside of a body before. So he cuts him open, he's explaining everything, this organ, this organ, how this works, and what goes on. And, and, uh, and they're just, you know, they're full of wonder, awe. Um, and then suddenly they grow silent. And Dr. Cuticle just keeps cutting away, talking away. And, um, the silence grows pretty loud, and then he notices that the man is dead. 
He's been operating on a dead cadaver. When I first read that, it was a sermon to me. Uh, and I realized how much I had read the Bible that way. I was so excited. I really was. I mean, I was just excited. All this the language, the Hebrew, the Greek, the Ugaritic, the Aramaic. Uh, I just, and I'd come home and I even wrote Jan poems in Ugaritic at one point. <laughs> they were really bad, but nobody knew it. <laughs> This text is a living text, and we can't treat it like a cadaver, just dissecting it. The next word is meditatio, meditate. Doesn't meditatio sound better than meditate? I mean, it just, I just like that. Most of what we read is embedded well, most of what we see, not just read, is embedded in what we don't see. Most of what's around us, most of what we live in is invisible. The imagination is the gift we have for filling in the blanks, making the connections between what we see and what we don't see. You can only read a page of the Bible at a time, or a sentence at a time, really, but it's embedded in this huge world of the Bible, of, of, yeah, this huge storied world that includes all that God wants to reveal to us. And if we aren't, if our minds aren't working imaginatively, if we're not connecting things, remembering things, keeping things together, we'll miss the whole point of it. You wouldn't read a sentence out of a novel and shut it or memorize it and go on about it. You want to know the whole story. All those sentences work in a huge story. We had a, when I was a pastor in Maryland, I, we had a um, nursery school and I'd bring the kids over every week and sit them on the floor and tell them, talk to them, tell them stories. And I had them there one, it was in the spring, it was March. March in Maryland, those of you who live in, around the Appalachians uh, come from that area, just, you know, spring is glorious. It's just, you know, flowers, bushes, trees, color every place, just explodes. And in March, you know, you've had a long winter, things are dead, and you just, when that comes, it's just great. Uh, I grew up in Montana. We don't have spring in Montana. We have winter, and we have summer, and in between, there are three weeks of mud. <laughs> so I always just really enjoyed those Maryland springs. Well, it was early, early spring. Nothing was happening yet. And I had a last year's bird's nest. And I wanted to talk about the spring that was coming. I mean, they all knew it was coming. They had a long winter. Um, and so I had this bird's nest in my hand, and I started talking about just that morning warblers left Venezuela and started for Maryland. And they're in the air. They're going to be here in about two weeks. And I described the warblers, colorful little birds, their songs. And, uh, you know, sometimes you know that you are doing it just right. I had those kids, 13 or 14 kids, sitting there on the floor, and they were, they were in the air. They were watching those. They were flying with those birds. And they were going to see those birds very soon making nests just like this. And I had them. I knew I had them. And just then, Bruce said, Why isn't there any hair on your head? <laughs> Bruce is four years old. And he's already had his imagination corrupted by television. <laughs> Why didn't he see what I was seeing, what everybody else was seeing? No imagination. The imagination is what puts the birds in the air and fills that nest with them in March, when everything is dead outside. 
The word usually translated meditate in the Bible is haga, the Hebrew word. Um, the first psalm, it'll be like a, the man who's blessed is going to be like a tree delighting in the word on which he med- on the law on which he meditates day and night. Meditate is a tame translation. The word has to do more with mumbling, uh, groaning, um, uh, talking kind of in a low, appreciative voice. Uh, one of the writers who has influenced me a lot, Baron Friedrich von Hugel, said that uh, reading the Bible, or reading anything actually, um, is not gulping down a meal, but sucking on a lozenger. Just, you just make it last as long as you can. Psalm 119 does that. Just 22, an acrostic that goes 22 stanzas, everyone taking a letter of the alphabet and using it to taste and see the Word of God. Just sucking on it. We had a dog years ago. He's long deceased. A small dog. About His name was Thunder. I don't know how we got the name Thunder. Our daughter named him. Um, and when summers in Montana, Thunder had a wonderful time. We lived in the woods. Uh, there are foothills around. And um, she loved uh, finding bones. And she'd find the carcass of a deer that a coyote had brought down and she'd come back so proud of this bone. The bone was usually as big as she was. And um, she would you those of you who have dogs you know what the what the um, what it's like. They you know they come in, they're proud, they kinda of wag their tail, they jump around showing off this great prize that they have and Thunder would always do that and we'd tell him what a good dog he was and um, compliment him and and then he'd after he was the social aspects of the find were satisfied he'd drag the bone off 20 yards or so by a big stone and gnaw on it work it um, I noticed one day that uh, Isaiah uses the word haga meditate in reference this is in chapter 34 of Isaiah um, or 31, I think it's 31, um, to um, about a lion growling over its prey. Well, can't you just see that? You know, he's, he's not going to wolf this down. He's a lion, after all. He doesn't wolf. <laughs> um, he's going to make this last as long as he can. Well, Thunder would do this for two or three hours and then go off, bury the bone, and the next day get it out again and a, a good shank bone would usually last you about 10 days. That's meditate. That's taking these words and keeping them in the story and you in the story so that it all becomes yours. Oratio, fourth word, pray. Um, everything in scripture every word of scripture is spoken to you personally by the spirit and it's all meant to be lived this is personal speech and it's meant to be answered personally so we've got to we haven't completed this process of, of um, reading scripture, attending to scripture until we answer. Prayer is our answer. We answer the speech. God doesn't just put things up on billboards, showing them, showing us how the world is. He doesn't send us memos. Uh, we don't get email. We get personal speech. And until we answer, the language act is not complete. 
until you say, yes, I understand, why, whatever you say. Prayer. That's what prayer is. Just to keep it straight in my own head, I've distinguished language one, two, and three. There are different ways to use language. Language one is the first language we learn. Um, the oohs and ahs of a baby, mama, dada, cries, groans, sighs. Um, recognitions, finally these form into words, and, um, and then we go on. These are words of relationship. These are words, you know, you parents know what it's like. You know, you hear that first word, wow, it's, you know, you've got a real human being in your hands. And, uh, and as a child learns words, it's an exciting process. But then, after about a year, year and a half, um, they start to put things together. And they can name things, a ball, a toy, a bed, a chair, and the words start to develop into sentences. And this is you, we've entered a new stage now. Words mean something. They're not just relational. There's an objective world out there. Information. And we master that world, or at least the rudiments of it, quite quickly and quite easily. Um, and then we develop a third kind of language, which I would call the language of motivation. Um, do this, don't do that. Uh, come and look at this. Uh, language used to involve you in something other than you. Our son, Leif, um, was a pretty good kid as he grew up. He didn't talk much. Um, and I was in my study one day reading, studying, uh, and um, Leif was in his room next to where I was, and Jan was in the kitchen, and she said to him, uh, Leif, um, I want you to take out the garbage before you leave the house. Silence. Now, if she would have just worked on statistics, she would have quit right there. Because he usually, you know, 95% of the time, he'd do what he was told to do. But she didn't work off a statistical base that she had in her Palm Pilot. Uh, she raised her voice. Leif, take out the garbage before you leave. Silence. Decibels went up another notch. Leaf, I told you, take out the garbage before you leave the house. And then this quiet voice said, yes, mother. And that was it. She quit. He took out the garbage. But he hadn't taken it out yet. Why did she keep at him? Because it was personal speech. She was saying something. She needed an answer. Friends, every sentence in this Bible is God speaking to you. Answer him. Answer. Make the connection between your life and the life of God. We live in a society where there's an enormous amount of um, informational language, motivational language, but the personal language diminishes as we grow older. Remember when you were a teenager or when you had teenage kids and you'd hear the telephone and your kid was on the telephone and uh, this, this conversation goes on and on and on and on. Yeah, cool, sure. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, cool. Uh, <laughs> shut up. Uh, and, you know, for... 30 minutes. What are they doing? Well, they're using language one. Time of your life, you need reassurance that you are something, somebody. That you aren't just someone who has to get grades or do a job. You're just, you're 
who you are just as you are. And here's somebody who will listen to that and affirm that. Prayer is our language one. It's not, we're not motivating God. We're not telling God something. We're saying yes. Prayer is practice in saying yes. Yes, Father. One more thing. This is the hardest one. It's the hardest one to talk about. Contemplatio. Contemplation. Um, I hesitate to use the word because, you know, I just everybody tunes me out when I say contemplation. Um, but contemplation is all these things working together now. The, the lexio, the meditatio, the oratio, they get worked into a life which then gets expressed almost, well, not almost, unselfconsciously. You're just, you're living the Christian life the way a good baseball player swings a bat. You're not thinking about it. But a lot of work and practice and skill, coordination went into the swing of that bat. So contemplatio, contemplation is this contemplative life. We had a couple of nuns last summer who were going to come and visit us for a few days. And our granddaughter was there with us. And um, they were in Utah. And the fires were really bad. And one of our friends has bad lungs, weak lungs. And she called one day and she said, would you mind if we came a few days early? Because the smoke is just so bad. And we said, sure. So Jan told Lindsay this that night as she put her to bed that the nuns might be coming. And um, I hope she didn't mind. And Lindsay was in bed on her knees. They were talking. And uh, Lindsay said, I don't want those nuns to come. I don't want any nuns in here. All they do is go, hum, hum, hum. I think that's what a lot of people think contemplation is. <laughs> they didn't come, actually. The fire subsided, the smoke, smoke diminished. And, but we told them that, and Sister Constance said, Oh, I wish we'd have come, so she could see what nuns were really like. <laughs> we want to live a life that is pulled together, held together, life of wholeness, life of joy, life of sacrifice. You can't do this in a hurry. This is, this takes a long time. Hurry destroys, well, if you're looking for a way, a means that is efficient, forget about it. There aren't any, not in the Christian way. This takes a long time. I have a, there's a man who lives north of me. Well, I don't know him personally. I've seen him in action. And, um, but he's a writer, Rick Bass. Some of you have read his books. Um, but he's a fierce environmentalist also. He wants to preserve the wilderness. He wrote an essay, which I read with appreciation not long ago. And I thought about, I was, I knew I was going to be speaking to you and I wanted to tell you this. He said, I used to think that when I had a hard, difficult task to accomplish, um, I just put one brick at a time, just patiently one brick at a time, and I'd finally get there. I've changed my metaphor. I've been reading about glaciers. A glacier is the most powerful force in the world. Nothing is as powerful as a glacier. And a glacier is formed by an accumulation of snow half an inch here, inch there, a skiff here, and just, and then this is compressed and it forms into ice and it just goes on and on and on. Nothing happens to the glacier until it's 64 feet thick. And when it's 64 feet thick, it starts to move and nothing can stop it. Look at the mountains. Most of them glacier cut around here. 64 feet thick. And then nothing can stop it. 
This is what we're doing, friends. We're building a Christian identity. We're building a Christian character. And we can't be in a hurry. All the hurry-up things short-circuit what God is doing patiently by his Spirit. Here's a story that pulls it together. Bruce and Carol used the word God talk last night. Steve gave us a wonderful picture of efficiency. It's not efficient in this work. This happened to a friend of mine, um, and it has to do with their little granddaughter. I'm changing names here. but she has the old-fashioned name of Charity. Um, I've met Charity. I've been in the grandmother's and grandfather's home some and seen her in action. She's a plump, precocious little girl. And um, they moved away from where they'd been uh, and lived in a far-off city. And my friend, Brenda, went to visit her. The other grandmother had just been there. Uh, the other grandmother takes her grandmothering spiritual duties quite seriously. And um, at five o'clock in the morning, a little charity crawled into bed with my friend uh, Brenda, cuddled up to her and said, Grandma, let's not have any God talk while you're here, okay? I believe God is everywhere. Let's just get on with living. it. Let's get on with living the contemplative life. The life that gathers all the God talk into relationships into behaviors, into grace, into love. I don't know about you, but I've done the right thing in the wrong way one too many times. Let's do it right. Jesus the way, the truth, and the life. Amen. We are so thankful to Regent College for their longtime friendship. Regent Audio has kindly given us permission to use this lecture. You can find more lectures by Eugene Peterson, as well as many others, such as J.I. Packer, James Houston, and Gordon Fee, at www.regentaudio.com. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.